0: um mm-hmm. 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 Good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be with you once again tonight as we continue our series, Body of Work, thinking about how God works through his people, how he calls each one of us to serve. And over the last few weeks, we've seen some different examples. We thought about prophecy. We thought about service and teaching. And now we get to one that's a little challenging to figure out how it fits into the mix. It's perhaps in your translation, exhortation. And you think about exhortation, and you think about what we just looked at last week with teaching, and you think, how does this fit in? Uh, They're very, very closely related, but I think as we explore exhortation tonight, as we think about what's being referred to there, we'll see how this is really something, perhaps as much as any of them, that we're all called to do in different parts of our lives. And so let's go ahead and ask God that he would help us to see how we can be those who exhort in our lives, and then we'll dig in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for how it comes and exhorts us, how it directs us. Lord, would you help us to see where you are calling us to be exhorters, where you are calling us to show your truth and your encouragement to those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know there have been a number of storm systems that have passed through the areas that those listening to this this live stream are in, whether you're here in St. Louis or you're at the other parts of the country that, and the world that often tune in that are a part of our Little Hills family. We've had storms go through Mexico, storms on the West Coast, storms on the East Coast. They've been all over the place. It's been a, a stormy week. And storms often bring attention to our power lines, and and how much we depend on electricity, and and a storm comes through, it knocks out power, and and suddenly you realize that that simple action of flipping on a switch and flipping it off, plugging something in and unplugging it, something that we do probably many, many times on an average day and don't really think about, how much that impacts our lives. We depend an awful lot on electricity, don't we? And the whole process of creating electricity is interesting when you think about all the lines that are run and how they they run to our homes and our businesses, how we charge things up that aren't plugged in so that they can run. And it goes all the way back to these power plants that using various means generate electricity. And each of those plants, I think it's interesting to really reflect on this, each of those plants has a limited lifetime. Usually there's an estimated number of years that plant can run, and I don't fully understand how they calculate that most of the time, but I was reading about the Mad River power plant in Ohio, and with a plant like that, you can see how it did have a set lifetime, because it was built way back in 1927. It was built very early in broad power distribution, and so naturally it reached the end of its life. In fact, it reached its end of it the end of its life as far as the law was concerned years before it shut down in the early 70s the the owner of the plant was told that they needed to shut it down because it was such a polluting plant that it didn't have all the modern technology to be efficient and to avoid throwing all kinds of hazardous waste into the atmosphere and so they were supposed to shut down but they managed through legal wrangling and so on to keep it going until the early 1980s but then what do you do with a plant? These massive structures that we build to power our world, they're they're big and they're often filled with waste that needs to be carefully disposed of. What are you going to do with those things? And that was the issue around the Mad River power plant for years until I believe it was in 2010. They decided it was time to tear down the remaining structure. And so they brought in a demolition crew. The demolition crew set charges around the building to cause it to collapse in an orderly fashion, including its massive central smokestack they'd added in the latter years of the plant as they'd expanded out the 200 and something foot tall chimney. And so they they cut precision cuts in that chimney to make it fall where they'd already cleared land. Only they didn't realize that chimney also had cracks that had formed from all the years of use. And so when the detonation occurred, the the chimney didn't fall the way it was supposed to fall. Instead, it fell right on top of a bunch of transformers and knocked out the very power that the plant for years had produced. Even though the plant was no longer being used, the the infrastructure around it was, and in that one accidental use of a demolition attempt, they, they ended up knocking out power to the whole area. Sometimes our best attempts to clean things up, to, to set things right, end up being very destructive. That wasn't the most destructive. Someone commented afterwards that, thankfully, it hadn't caused any loss of life. The The people there to watch the demolition went scrambling and were able to escape before they were crushed by this this chimney falling in the wrong direction. But, but it did cause a disruption. It... it was counterintuitive to what was trying to be done, which was to, to move the city and its infrastructure forward, take out this old plant, put in something new. It took out good infrastructure. It took out power generation, knocked out traffic signals, took out power for people's homes. And this sort of thing happens sometimes. It, it's amazing in some ways it doesn't happen more when people carefully demolish buildings, but, but it does happen. And sometimes when we're trying to help each other clean up our lives and demolish the sin that's built in our lives and has been accumulating soot over the years, we we set the charges, we think we're helping someone out, we initiate that charge, and all we do is cause this giant plume of smoke and and collapsing parts of the building that lands on the person's heart, on the person's hands as they're trying to serve, and it ends up making them less effective. It ends up making them feel more distant from God and from his church. I think that's what Paul has in mind as he talks about the spirit of exhortation. He wants us to think about what it really means to be called to communicate God's truth. We talked about teaching last week, and, and we need that basis of, of teaching in our world where we explain what God has to say to us, and, and we explain what's true about God and what's true about us. But then there's another step that needs to go forward from that because we all need help being built up into the people that God has called us to be. We we don't get there on our own. And when we try on our own, it's like trying to demolish the building from the inside. It collapses on us. But too often when we don't realize that part of our calling as Christians is to help build up other people, we, we set the charges, but we don't notice the cracks in their lives, they're going to cause the, the buildings of sin in their lives to collapse in a way that's more destructive than what was already there. Our sin ends up being imported into their lives. And so as we think about where we're going tonight, what we're really thinking about is how do we build up? How do we follow this call that God has given us to be those who build? Well, The best way to explore this and to think about what Paul really has in mind with exhortation is to see how exhortation shows up in Scripture. And for example, we see that same word that Paul's using here show up in Acts 15. This is when the Jerusalem Council is formed dealing with controversies in the church. And they send out a letter clarifying what's going on. And here's the reaction people have to that letter. It says, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of his encouragement. Think about that for a second. Have you ever gone and, and shared with someone something that you think that they're not quite doing right in their life? Something where they're, you, you feel like it's clear to you that that they're not acting in a godly way or they're not acting in the most godly way or they're not going the way that God has called them and, and you walk into their life. You, you say something to that effect. How often do people hear that and rejoice? How often does it make people excited to hear it? Well, for most of us, we'd probably say usually not, usually not. But this is the interesting thing. This word exhortation, as it's often translated in Romans 12, elsewhere in Scripture is often translated encouragement. And and the two are interwoven. This exhortation is an exhortation that should be upbuilding in the sense of encouragement. It, it, It doesn't merely correct people. It doesn't merely say, well, here's the truth and here's where you are and you're missing the truth. But rather, it conveys the truth of God in such a gracious and loving way that, it actually causes people to be encouraged. And in this case, in Acts 15, the people are encouraged because it solves several challenges that they're wrestling with. One of which is, how do we live in this society? In last night's message, as we were thinking about the letters to the churches in Revelation, we we looked at some of the different challenges they faced, and, and several of them, it seems like their big challenge was, how do we remain faithful in opposition that would call us to live a little bit more like society? Others were facing a slightly different challenge. How do we stand firm knowing we can't integrate more into society and we're going to be persecuted for it? But the challenge is, how do we live in society? Well, that's not a question that's unique to any particular part of the church or a particular time. It's something that, as we seek to live godly lives, all of us are going to have to ask the question about. And the people in Acts 15 are asking, and they receive an answer. They receive guidance from the assembled leadership of the church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so what do they do when they hear it? They rejoice because here it is, they're asking the question, how does God want me to live in this particular moment, in this particular situation? What things can I do? What things shouldn't I do? And they receive an answer and they're glad for it. Part of that speaks of the people receiving, that they're looking for the answer. They're not just saying, this is what I want to do and so I'm going to do it. They're they're wanting to know, well, how does God want me to live? And How good is it when we live looking for that sort of encouragement, looking for that exhortation? But also, as it's delivered to them, it's delivered to them in such a gracious way, they're ready to hear it. Not condemning them, you idiots, why aren't you seeing this clearly? It's saying, here is what we prayerfully discerning from the Holy Spirit believe is the answer to what you're struggling with. That's the first part. The second part, though, is that this exhortation, this encouragement, speaks to how they continue the mission they're doing because it's dealing with how do gentiles integrate into the church and there were debates on this some people said well gentiles need to become jews first they need to be circumcised they need to follow all the laws and the rituals and the festivals and then once they do all that then they can come to know jesus others were saying well who cares about any law at all let's just do whatever we want whenever we want because Jesus is gracious and so it doesn't really matter anymore. And this is the the controversy, the tug of war going on in the church as this letter is sent out. And so when the letter says, you don't need to make these people be good Jews. You need to help them to understand how to live in a God-pleasing way, regardless of what kind of person they are. They don't need to, to somehow be different people. They need to simply do what's good and holy and righteous everywhere in all time. It's an incredibly helpful thing for the mission as well. It's speaking to how do we reach these people? It's not just answers, though, because it's easy sometimes to give out an answer. It's easy to be removed from the situation and say, okay, you people over there, you're dealing with trying to reach this particular group of people. Here's how you should do it. Or you're struggling with this issue in your life. Here's how you should deal with it. The disciples... The apostles, they, they don't just send out an answer. They send people. They send actual members of the church leadership to live with these people, to help them wrestle through that. And that's what we see as we read more of Acts chapter 15. Take a look at verse 24. In the letter, it says, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us to have having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Skipping a little further to Acts uh, 15:32 to 35, we read, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. What do we see here? People who were deeply gifted in the church and were deeply a part of the church leadership were sent to encourage the believers in Antioch to to not just say, here is an answer from down on high, now go and do it, but to actually teach and preach the word and be in the situation with them. And we see here four men named men that were deeply loved and had done all kinds of great missions work most notably paul and barnabas we know them well from from acts and elsewhere in scripture these men were actually going to live with the people work with the people for a great deal of time and until the people really understood what was going on better understood the scriptures then we see two of them sent off but paul and barnabas remain and continued teaching because they actually loved the people. They cared about the people, and they wanted to work through it with them. They didn't want to stay at a distance and simply send information. Here, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do, but we're busy with other things. Or maybe even, what well, we'll send some unimportant person that you don't really know. We're not going to risk actually sending out and occupying the time of someone who's really important in the church like Paul. We're not going to, to do that. Here, here's someone you've never heard of who doesn't know you, who hasn't spent any time with you. They're passing on the letter. If you have some questions, give it to them. Maybe they can give you an answer. No, they actually send prime representatives of the church because it's an important thing. Here are other believers. That they have questions. They're They're struggling. And it's important enough, because it's brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling, that Paul and Barnabas and the others are going to be there with them. This is so different from what we see going on, for example, in 1 Corinthians. As Paul is seeking to correct the Corinthians who are struggling, the people of Corinth don't even have this sort of heart for caring for each other amongst each other in the city. Take a look here at 1 Corinthians 14, 1-5. Paul says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in tongue in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. may be built up. See, we have that building up notion again there. And this is the remarkable thing when we look at the contrast here. On the one hand, you have one part of the church sending people to help another part, a delegation of the VIPs, as it were, of the church, the ones that would have had a reputation throughout the whole church, sending them to help out. On the other hand, in Corinth, what we see is is people vying to have the most important spiritual gift. We talked about this a bit back when we looked at prophecy on, on the first week. And you think about that, here, here you have a church and the people are so interested in building themselves up against the others in the church that they would prefer to have spiritual gifts that look impressive rather than those that help their fellow believers around them be built up. On the other hand, what we see in Acts as a model of how the church actually should work is that here are believers who are willing to travel to build up others, not by going to do the most important thing it would seem like, some spectacular new conversion that the Holy Spirit's going to sweep through a city or something, but to go to existing believers who are just mixed up and confused about how to deal with something because, why? Because they actually love them. And too often we act when fellow believers are struggling, they have questions, they're not sure how to address a situation in life, we act like it's an inconvenience. And maybe we just want to deal with it from a distance. This has gotten so much worse in the social media era where Christians all over the place would love to give advice to a Christian who's struggling at the moment, but don't actually want to be in the life of the Christian who's struggling at the moment. And on the other hand, when we think about it, and this is where that word exhortation kind of makes us nervous, neither are we willing to receive that encouragement, that exhortation when it comes. What do we want? Well, we want things that build ourselves up, just like the Corinthians did. It's so much easier when we're just focused on how can I feel more important? How can I feel holier? How can I feel even more on fire for God? It's not bad to want to be more holy, to be more like Jesus. It's not bad to want to be on fire for the Lord, but are we concerned with ourselves or are we concerned with others around us? You think about the whole industry of self-help books and how many of them there are. I read that from 2013 to 2019, self-help book sales were up 11%. They were already very popular. They went up that much more. And they the number of self-help books out there tripled from 30,000 to 85,000 self-help books. Why does that do that? Because we like going and getting books that tell us how to make our lives better how to to feel more important to feel more meaningful to feel stressed all these different things and and oftentimes these books talk about how important we are and that we should view ourselves as important but generally speaking self-help books don't spend a lot of time talking about how we should devote ourselves to other people the sort of help that we see going on in scripture, the sort of help that's biblical, isn't self-help. It's each other help, that we lift each other up. And the the Corinthians, they would have been all over the current self-help book trend. They would have been buying out the bookstores of self-help books because they wanted to feel more important themselves. But the much harder thing, the, the much less attractive thing in the moment to us is to, to go and help others. And that's exactly what God intends us to do. That's what it looks like to be living as those doing God's work. One commentator reflecting on this calling to exhortation or encouragement said, if it's a true gift from God, it's a gift that's laden with grace. It's pouring out grace into someone's life. If it's all about building ourselves up or making ourselves feel important in contrast to others, to speaking to others' flaws without giving them a helping hand out of their their current situation... If we're demolishing the the sin buildings in their life, but not caring whether it collapses on them and buries them in the rubble, if that's what we're doing, we're not actually exhibiting spiritual gifts. We're not exhibiting the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Satan loves to have us point out other people's sins when we're actually demolishing the people in the process. What God wants us to do to help people escape the demolishing buildings in their lives, the the crumbling buildings, the pollution in their lives, and to experience the refreshing grace that he has for them and for us. It's a third way between that that constant self-help, just build ourselves up and tell ourselves how great we are mentality that we often see in our society and that oddly contrasting motive that we have in our lives, yet one that we embrace as part of that same selfishness that we often have, to tear other people down. That's the calling to live inside, to actually step into the situation that a person is in and walk alongside them with it. Sometimes we we need to open up and we need to allow someone to walk along in our lives, that we need to say, I need encouragement, I need correction. And sometimes we need to be the person offering it. But the key thing is it's a relational thing. It's a a long-term thing. Paul and Barnabas go and stay for quite a while in Antioch because they're there to help. They have a relationship with these people. They love these people. So they actually want to build them up. And what do you know? When when we talk about this, we're not talking about just what we do as human beings. We're talking about what God himself has done for us. Jesus coming into the world and dwelling with us. The Holy Spirit being sent to be with us. And that's the notable thing. Jesus didn't just come in, sort of do this little parachute drop into the world, say hi for a little while, teach us some stuff and leave. He, he took on the penalty of our sin first, but even then he didn't leave us. And that's what we see, for example, in John chapter 14. Listen to what Jesus says to assure his disciples right before he's betrayed. He says, and I will ask the father and he will send, he will give you another helper. To be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. That word helper that Jesus uses there, it's related to the word that's translated exhortation or encouragement in your Bible in Romans twelve, where we've been looking these past weeks. Jesus is saying, I'm going to send God the encourager to you. The Holy Spirit, when we think about who the Holy Spirit is, who is he? He's the very spirit of God dwelling in us. And what does he do? How is he referred to? He's the one who encourages us, who exhorts us, who comforts us, depending on your translation. But all those are capturing an aspect of what he does. And and." Yes, we affirm that the Holy Spirit corrects us, that at times when we're being tugged away from a sin in our lives, that that's the Holy Spirit. But the key thing, the key thing is God doesn't send his Holy Spirit, convict us, and then pull his Holy Spirit away from us and say, good luck with that. See if you can deal with it. No, the Holy Spirit, he dwells in us. And Jesus, even as as he's about to take on the sin of the world, isn't saying, well, I'm going to do all this for you. You don't need anything else. I mean, if you can't deal with it now, after I've taken on the sin of the world, I don't know what to say to you. Just, you know, I, I tried. And what does he do? He sends the Holy Spirit to help them. And that's what we see throughout the whole New Testament is the Holy Spirit comes and acts, empowers the works of the church, that Jesus hasn't left the church as orphans. And he didn't do it then, and he doesn't do it now. The Holy Spirit guides us and, and leads us towards a path that's encouraging and not destructive. Acts chapter 15, once again. And this letter that has the requirements for Christian living, the, the apostles write, for it has seemed good to us, excuse me, seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That's an important adi- a difference there. It's not just to them, it's to the Holy Spirit and to them. To lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, and I think it's so important that that's there because typically we fall into different places at different maybe moments in our life, but we fall into either the inclination to not lay enough requirements on on ourselves and others that we say, well, again, let's just let anything go, just like the controversy in the church that's going on in Acts fifteen, just let anything go because, yeah, Jesus is gracious. Who cares? or to lay too much of a burden to say, well, let's go ahead and see how many things we can require out of people. And and oftentimes when we do that, what do we do? We focus on the things that aren't temptations to us. We focus on things that we don't usually sin in because if we do that, we can feel really good. Well, I'm not having any problem with this. But what do they do? They say, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they don't want to lay any more burden on the people than absolutely necessary. They know that basic christian morality basic holiness is required to to actually experience fellowship with god if we're constantly doing everything that's displeasing to god and and not being conformed to him we're not going to be able to experience really what it's like to be be in his presence we're we're going to be clouding up what he's doing in our lives but they also realized that while many of them are Jews, and so it would be easy to lay on even the Gentile believers, hey, you should follow all these laws. You should observe all these things. You should separate and not eat the foods that your families and, and friends eat that, that are forbidden to Jews. They, they could do that, and they could maybe find it even relatively easy. By the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they don't want to lay an unnecessary burden on people. Instead, they want to lay a burden on themselves by sending a part of themselves out to go and dwell with these people and to help them, just as Jesus does. He takes on the burden for us and then continues to help us with the burdens that we do have. Are we willing to get into the muddy mess? Are we willing to to actually be there as people struggle? To, To not just offer correction, to offer some teaching, even trying to couch it in some love like we talked about last week but to actually be down in the mess with them, to be there when they struggle, and when they mess up, to help pick up the pieces. Not to say, well, I told you so. Well, it would have been better if you did this, but to actually say, here, let's get up together. Because we recognize that we're one body together, we're one family together, and when, when someone's hurting, when someone's struggling, that that hurt is on us too. Are we willing to do that? There was a fascinating man about 150 years ago named Joseph de Wooster, And you probably haven't heard of him by that name, but he was a man deeply burdened. He had some health issues. He was deeply burdened by people struggling with leprosy. He didn't have leprosy, but, but he knew what it was like to struggle with health issues. And so he asked to go and serve in Hawaii where there was a leper colony. And this colony had been formed by the kingdom of, of Hawaii to separate out the people with this contagious disease so they wouldn't spread it and the intention didn't started out good they were going to have this colony but provide them with everything that they needed to to survive it wasn't meant to be a prison colony and yet it had basically become that because the the people that were healthy didn't want to go into it the people that were already infected weren't allowed out of it and the terrain of the area that they were in it didn't really allow for easy cultivation of food so there was lack of food. There weren't a lot of supplies coming in, so they were living in shacks. And as they lived there as outcasts from society, what happened? Lawlessness happened. All kinds of sin was happening in this colony because you had all these people who had basically lost everything, had been completely rejected. What did they have to lose? Why should they even try to act in a civilized fashion any longer? This man arrived there with a burden to proclaim Jesus to them. And he came as a man who didn't have leprosy, came into there when most people didn't want to. Why? Because he saw what Jesus did. Jesus went into the messy situations of life and he went there and he taught them about Jesus and he helped them build buildings and he helped them tend food. And he helped to, to call them to not an overly oppressive burden, but rather the burden of following the path of Jesus to, to, to living in love for your neighbor and for God. And it transformed the colony. The lawlessness went away. The people started to to understand that even though they were rejected in society, that God loved them. And so this man, better known as Father Damien, made a transforming difference that was heard all the world over about what he was doing for these people. He eventually contracted leprosy because he lived with these people. He ate with these people. He loved these people. And he died of leprosy. He was willing to give his very life to help these people understand who God was. And that's exactly what God calls us to do. Usually it's not literally giving our life. Usually it's not going and putting ourselves at risk of getting a a contagious disease. It's not often that. But sometimes it is. What it always is, though, is to be willing to give our lives, our time, our abilities, whatever God has gifted us with to help others and to build them up to to understand that the, the point of knowing the truth isn't to bring cost to others so they understand how far they fall short compared to us, but rather to be willing to take on the cost ourselves, to follow the picture of who Jesus is, to walk alongside whatever messes they're in. And if the church does that, when the church does that, when there are more of us who are acting like Father Damien and not so much like what we often see in, in the Twitter representation of the church today, or the often even the published Christian author realm of, of the church today. Often what we see in our local churches today, where it's all about simply correcting people and not getting into the mess. If there are more of us, and may that be us as a church, that are willing to actually put our lives on the line for people, what happens? Well, they see that about us, but more importantly, they see that about God how do we do that we can't do that on our own no one's going to give up their 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 life to go live with social outcasts in in a place that ultimately is going to lead them into a horrible miserable painful death for the glory of it there isn't glory in that per se yes that that man is now hailed as a hero and, and he was canonized in the catholic church for his work so yes he received glory but after he was dead What sense does that make? Well, it makes all the sense when we realize the glory isn't meant to be ours. It's meant to be Jesus's. And may we be those who take on that pain, understanding that God has built us up when we're broken and we're dirty. So when he calls us to do the same, he's not calling us to some bizarre burden, but simply to model his love to those around us. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, it's a lot easier to, to reflect on your truth and share it than it is to actually step into the messy situations of life and to help each other live it. But Lord, would you help us to start with the truth that you've done that for us? That if we're feeling outcast tonight, that we feel like we've been thrown into the leper colony and are of no consequence, that that you would help us to understand that we are of consequence to you, that you love us. And then as you remind us of the love that you have given to us, Would you help us to be so overpowered by it, to be so amazed by it, that we're willing to step into the messes of others to share that love? Would you help Little Hills Church and the other churches represented by those listening tonight, the church in general, the church here in the United States and in Mexico and in Africa and in the world, wherever we might be, Maybe someday the, the church around the universe, wherever it might be that you send us, that we would see that the calling is always the same. To to recognize the love that you've given us and then to share that love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope this was an encouragement to you tonight. And if there's any way that I can be praying for you, maybe you feel burdened. Maybe you feel like the buildings of, of life have been demolished on you and you're just barely here right now. I would love to pray with you. And I know those listening in our church family would as well. And so you can leave a comment in the comments below. You can leave a prayer request on screen, uh, on the texting address on screen. It'd be great to pray with you and walk through life with you. That's what we are called to do as Christians. We're also called to serve with whatever we give, and that includes being generous. That's what we're thinking about next week. And so please do share this video and then come back next week as we continue to explore these gifts that God gives us, this calling that God gives us, that we can actually show his love and can be an effective church. Hope you have a wonderful and blessed week. I can't wait to join you again next week.